everyone, and welcome to episode 10. That's one zero. We're finally in double digits of UConn 360, the world's preeminent, most beloved podcast about the University of Connecticut and all that goes on here from soup to nuts, as they say. Um, my name is Tom Breen. I am your facilitator of sorts. Joining me, as always, Julie Bartuga. Hello. Ken Best. I am here. We're all here, and today we're here in the Humanities Institute in Homer Babbage Library. Uh, thanks to everyone at the Institute for making us feel right at home. This is a beautiful facility. I don't think I've been in this room before. I think I have, and I don't know why. I'm having undergraduate flashbacks, but it's beautiful. Well, there's lots of nice space up here, and it's a quiet floor. So uh, thanks for everyone listening. Uh, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, tell a friend. Follow us on Twitter at UConn Podcast. And without further ado, why don't we get right into our show this week? We've got some husky headlines. Ken, tell us what's going on. Do you know what zooplankton are? No. Anybody? Kind of. Anybody? Kind of. They're tiny animals roughly the size of insects that drift with ocean currents. And Mm. one of the leading experts on zooplankton is our marine biologist, Ann Buckland, who is at the Avery Point campus. Professor Buckland thinks of these tiny creatures as charismatic microfauna. She says they are the preferred food for many fish. There's more than 7,000 species that have been identified, and I remember that she was one of the people who led the study on the census of marine life a number of years ago. She did the zooplankton study, of course, and they identified 5,300 new species of ocean life adding to the previously known 230,000 ocean species. Now, because zooplankton are an important food source for large fish, they re- and they respond to environmental and climate change, the more we know about zooplankton, the more we can learn about the health of the ocean's ecosystem. Yeah. So her lab at Avery Point is using DNA sequencing to identify new species of zooplankton. They think there may be as many as 70,000 unknown species of zooplankton. Uh, there's a story on UConn today that we just did uh, that she wrote herself, and there's also one in the file. So if you want to learn more about zooplankton, fish Very food, cool. you can check that out. Wow. Sounds good. I knew it that I knew what they were. I, I was just pretending. I yeah. Didn't, uh-huh. I didn't know. Sure. Try and convince us. Uh, speaking of science, Julie, you've got some science facts for us. What's happening? Science. This is not anything like zooplankton. You may have seen in the news that the World Health Organization recently added gaming disorder as a mental health condition in the 11th edition of its international classification of diseases. I'm sure we all have a little bit of concern about whether we're addicted to our phones or video games, but not so fast, say some critics, including Nancy Petrie, who's a UConn health addiction expert. And she's currently leading the first study on internet addiction being funded by the National Institutes of Health. She's among experts who believe there's not yet enough evidence to classify gaming addiction or gaming disorder as a mental disorder. Petrie led international efforts to include online gaming addiction as a condition that requires greater research in the American Psychiatric Association's DSM-5, but she and other critics worry that including it right now as an official disorder before there's enough evidence and diagnostic criteria could lead to misdiagnosis. In a recent story on Wired.com, Petrie says, I don't want there to be people classified with a mental disorder when they don't really have one. That would not be good. No. And for me, the the big news that I want to report is that uh, UConn Foundation President Josh Newton announced that he'll be leaving in mid-August after about five years at the UConn Foundation. And in his tenure here, uh, he raised nearly $400 million. Well, the foundation raised nearly $400 million, which was a 46% increase over the previous five fiscal years. That includes the $150 million Transform Lives Scholarship Initiative. I I think I mentioned maybe it was the last podcast that 
the foundation uh, only dates to the 1960s. So we were very late in getting into the fundraising game. Josh Newton, by all accounts, has done a great job in helping us uh, play catch up with, with uh, some of our peer institutions who've been doing this for a lot longer. Uh, I can also say on a personal note that some of that money that was raised, it's Breen money. <laughs> My brother and I endowed a scholarship, a journalism scholarship in memory of our father, who Very was a cool. professor here from 1968 to 2004. So uh, best of luck to Josh Newton and uh, congratulations on all the good work here at the UConn Foundation. We're going to be going through some changes with our important people here. Uh, that is true. Uh, but you know what? Some things don't change. That's true, too. Like the joy of playing oozeball. Oh. And incredibly, that takes us to our first piece this week. Julie, you, speaking of oozeball. Speaking of oozeball, you kind of ruined my whole punchline. But that's okay. <laughs> um, we this, don't this talk is, much before we do this, This, this is all rehearsed. You, you Letting you, you in behind the scenes here. You, you talked about mud previously. I did talk about oozeball. And a, I said I didn't like mud. But... Um, a lot of people do like being covered in mud. So today, Nick Zaharias is vice president of development for a Manchester, New Hampshire-based health system. He's closing in on a milestone, speaking of fundraising, having uh, almost raised a career total of $100 million for the various nonprofits he's worked for. But Zaharias, who graduated in 1985, same year as my parents, I believe, says it all started here at UConn selling final exam fruit baskets and with a tradition we have all come to love. That's right, folks. Even though Tom ruined it, I interviewed the guy who brought oozeball to UConn. Oh, I didn't mention the thing about the fight, though, so that, that, <laughs> that, that'll still be a surprise. I'm a fundraiser, and I've done that ever since uh, I was at UConn. Actually, it started when I was with Student Alumni Association. We used to do final exam survival kits and fruit baskets, so that was my <laughs> start in fundraising. Actually, coming up this year, I'll be hitting the $100 million mark for raising funds That's throughout amazing. my career. So it's been hospitals, colleges, independent schools, a, a wide array of uh, different institutions. Congratulations. So what we really want to know is, how did Oozball get started? Oh, that's a great story. Uh, we were all volunteering in the alumni office back then. We were doing, you know, some fundraising, not a formal group. And then one went to a conference on student alumni associations, and she saw Oozeball. So we just said, okay, let's do it. Uh, we barely had a budget, so it was tough that first year. We only had one court, from what I remember, so it was small. And we couldn't even afford good loam or good dirt to be brought in. And we had to spend a week raking rocks out of it, garbage, some pieces of glass. Oh, no. <laughs> but it was a mess. I think there were four or five of us. Bob Raytar, class of 84, was the Wizard of Ooze. He was our first chairman, <laughs> student alumni. And uh, so we probably spent a good seven days cleaning that court up, raking it. The fire department was out there hosing it down. And that was the start of Oozeball, and then it exploded after that. Uh, we ended up on David Letterman. Really? I didn't know that. In the mud one year. Yeah, we unveiled the Husky Dog, actually, at Oozeball one year. Wow. And it was actually John D. Biagio, the UConn president, was the Husky Dog. Oh, my god. He gosh. got to wear the suit, which he always wanted to do, but we got him in the mud in the white suit. Oh, no. <laughs> Where was the court the first year? Yeah, the court was right next to the library. Uh, okay. So the grad dorms used to be there. I know there's some new construction there now, kind of across from the bookstore. Yep. So it was just a big empty dirt lot at that time. They could hardly uh, grow grass there anyways. So they said, well, go ahead and do it. Do you remember how many teams, how many students participated that first year? Boy, that was a long time. 
time ago. That's a good question. I think we had 16 teams the first year. Okay. So there was a lot of people getting cold because of one court, (laughs) two teams going at a time. Uh, But I think the second year we grew it to at least four courts, and then it quickly went to at least eight the third year. So it just exploded from there. Did you have any idea that it was going to be here 30 years later and still what it what it was back then, even bigger? You know, pro- probably not that first year. I think we all had uh, questions about it and would it take off. But as soon as we saw teams wanting to register and we sold out that first year within minutes and then kept growing and kept selling out. So we said, hey, we're on to something. It's going to be here for a while. <laughs> Didn't think it'd still be here 30-plus years later, but I'm glad it is. Glad to see how big it is at UConn. It's really a tradition. Yeah, it is. It's one of our big ones. People love it, and we get great pictures every year from <laughs> Uzpah. You were talking about when the president dressed up as Jonathan, and you were also Jonathan. I know you can't give us all your secrets, but um, there's a pretty no. funny photo <laughs> of you, and you know what I'm talking <laughs> oh, about, boy. with the Seton Hall Pirate. Can you tell us that story? Uh, oh, the infamous story. I wish this had never happened, but everyone <laughs> remembers us from those old days. So, Yeah, we had a game in the old field house, and back then you had maybe 4,000 people at a home game. So we were just starting to get big as a powerhouse in men's and women's basketball. So we're playing Seton Hall, and everything's going as planned. And, and back then, the visiting mascots used to go to games. So I'd go to all the away games, Wow! and the away mascots would come to our home court. So the Seton Hall Pirates there, very friendly guy before the game. We always meet and talk about maybe we'll do some skits, and here's what we're going to try to do. Now, so we didn't expect anything, and all of a sudden in the second half, I think we were coming out of a timeout. Uh, I got hit in the back of the head with something really hard, and I could actually see a crack across the nose of the Husky Dog outfit of the head. That's how hard I get hit, and it ends up, he had the big Seton Hall flag on what looked like a two-by-four, and that's what he was running around waving. Well, he he ran up behind me and smacked me in the head, And, uh, and that was the start of that. And so, you know, you do a lot of fake fighting as a mascot, and and what you do when you talk to each other, you actually grab the other mascot in a headlock and you talk through the eye holes. That's how you talk to okay. each other. Okay. So I grabbed them in a headlock and I said, what are you doing? You just cracked the head. He said, oh, I didn't mean to hit you that hard. It was supposed to be a fake. So so I thought it was over at that point. And we shook hands and hugged and you know, like mascots always do. And I walked away and he turned around and hit me a second time. And the crack extended down the nose. I mean, he destroyed the head. Oh, Luckily, my gosh. Luckily, I had it as protection. So it was like, I didn't know where that was coming from. And by this point, we were right on the baseline. They're trying to shoot free throws, and I just burned around, and I let loose. That photo, actually, is from the front page of the Hartford Current. Wow, it's a great photo. I thought I got away with it, and (laughs) what was funny was he ended up knocking him down on the court. I tore the flag off the 2x4, threw it in the stands. The crowd went crazy, and I think the student running the sound system even played the Rocky theme at that point. So it ended up being a whole production uh, the crowd went nuts, and of course, I ended up in the athletic director's office the next morning. I wish it had never happened, but you know, I had to represent UConn in the only way possible. And you know, it ends up he was not hurt in the end; just fell down and was kind of dazed a little bit. But uh, <laughs> the crowd got a big kick out of it. And even today, when I go back to homecoming or I see people on Facebook or someone sees that photo. They're like, oh, I remember that, like I was sitting there in the stands that night. So it was, it was one of those moments. Yeah, <laughs> you'll live on in infamy. <laughs> yeah, lucky me. <laughs> so we talked a little bit about your career, and you kind of alluded to it, but how else you know, did UConn set you up for your career and your life now, and what did you learn here that you carry with you? Yeah, that's a great question. I'd say that the teamwork that 
we had at UConn, you know, both, you know, I played a little bit of soccer for a while until I blew up my ankles. So teamwork there, Student Alumni Association doing survival kits and building 4,000 fruit baskets and doing oozeball while also going to class and doing everything else. And I also did a little subog work too. Um, just learning how to work with teams and, you know, you don't have to do everything yourself. And I think I've carried that the whole way in my career. And I've always been in pretty small fundraising shops, so you have to be very hands-on, but you have to rely on your team. And, and in fundraising, you have lofty goals to reach every year. And if you don't reach the goals, uh, you're out of a job. So it's kind of a high-pressure situation, but get fun with the team too and celebrate individual goals, celebrate team goals, and keep it as light as possible. So I think the sense of humor, which kind of gave the husky dog, brought that out a little bit, uh, <laughs> helps a lot. So, so I think all those lessons combined help a great deal. Awesome. And do you ever get back? You mentioned homecoming and some games. Some games and ever yeah, get we back try to, to get back a couple times a year. Yeah. Uh, Bobby Hobson, who works over at admissions, is one of my closest friends. Okay. So we stay in touch with Bob very close. And he comes up here to New Hampshire quite a bit. But I try to get back for at least homecoming, if not a couple games a year. And actually, I went to the football game at Fenway this past year. Oh, awesome. awesome. Yeah. yeah. Very nice. It wasn't yeah. a great game for you. No. Guys. It started out great. But, <laughs> and it was cold. It's pretty cool to see the team at Fenway. Very cool. Any parting words? Go Huskies. Okay, well, that was great. I, I didn't know that Uzball had a single inventor, so I learned a lot. Yeah, I guess he didn't actually invent it. He brought it here, but it was... He was kind of the start of something It's the same big. thing to me. <laughs> there, there have been many media Popularized. stories written about Uzball. Yes. Because it's so sloppy. It is sloppy. Sloppy good fun. Totally unrelated to anything sloppy is uh, American government. <laughs> <laughs> a, a subject about which I'm sh- most people don't have opinions. It's a very uncontroversial no subject. Very, very straightforward, clean cut. Very straightforward. Um, however, Professor Brian Waddell at UConn uh, has some interesting things to say about it in a new book. And Ken, you talk to him. Tell us what we're going to hear. Well, we, we actually, this is very timely given the news of just this past few days about the potential reorganization of some of the administrative agencies in in the federal government. And there are opinions on both sides, of course, as there should be on this. That's part of the process that we undergo. But Professor Waddell, who is a professor of political science, uh, says most Americans don't fully understand what government is supposed to do, let alone what it actually does. And so he and his uh, colleague, uh, Stan Luger, from the University of Northern Colorado, wrote a book titled What American Government Does, which was published uh, late last year. And we sat down at the new Yukon campus in downtown Hartford, where he is uh, located, just a few blocks from the State House. You could see the Capitol building from there to talk with Professor Waddell about the book and the government of the United States. What was the the impetus for getting this book done? Well, most books about the American government are about how it works, right? The the institutions, the presidency, Congress, Supreme Court, or about specific public policies. No book does what we try to do, which is, what does government do? There's a lot of attention to, a lot of criticism of American government, right? It's a powerful narrative across our politics. 
with one of our two major parties really looking at American government as a, as a negative force in our society and criticizing it as an unwanted intruder into the self-working processes of the free market. And so the, less, the idea is the less government, the better. My co-author and I were responding to that and responding to this, this powerful narrative that you know, President Ronald Reagan really began when he ran for office and he said that the nine most terrifying words are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Well, tell that to the people in Texas who were just inundated with the, with the hurricane. And we don't celebrate everything the government does, but we, we have divided what government does into functional categories. And again, no one else has ever done this. You mentioned uh, Ronald Reagan and the uh, conservatives in government, uh, generally the Republicans, have latched on to a statement that he made uh, many years ago that government is not the solution to our problem, government is the problem. But that was taken out of context because the preceding words was in, the pre in this present crisis, followed by now, so there will be no misunderstanding. It is not my intention to do away with the government. It is rather to make it work, work with us, not over us, to stand by our side, not right on our back. It seems that that has lasted for so long, but nobody understands its true meaning of what he said. Right, and I don't know if you got that from the book, because we, we quote Reagan in saying that, but I also, in a footnote at the bottom of the page, put the context of, what, of, of how he said that. And so he understood himself the importance of the government. This book isn't about defending government or celebrating government. We, we call it a realist and a practical approach. It's realist in, in trying to grasp in, in non-ideological terms what the government does and why it does it, right? These are, these are functions, many of these functions are functions that every successful government in the world engages in these types of policies. They're necessary policies for the, for the success of the United States as a nation in many cases. You describe the repressive and the extractive aspects of government being repressive to defend territory and policy to maintain order, but the extraction, the taxes to pay for the army and the police force to make that so. Our general approach and how we divide up the functions come out of Charles Tilley's work. He wrote a very seminal piece about state-making as organized crime and how the original modern states competed with each other for territory. And the successful ones were able to, to, to develop bureaucracies that could tax the, the subject population and that could conscript citizens into the army, right? And those three elements reinforced each other. The more effective your bureaucratic organization in your army, the more effective your, your taxation you're extracting of taxes. That's the sort of the, the, the you know, the brainstem of, of governments, right? Every government does this. They, they, they're, they're responsible for stability and order and protecting of the national, the national boundaries. Tilly's argument is very, very influential because people then see this as the reason for this zero-sum game idea about government. That the idea that governments gain power at the expense of their societies. So as the governments become more powerful, they're more able to conscript and they're more able to tax, right? In that sense, governments are, are going to be um, overbearing. 
government saw that economic strength was a key indicator of govern of the strength of the government and so they were desirous of doing everything they could for the economic leaders of the country to establish a strong government what well, one of the major themes that you you kick off early in the book and sort of follow it through is the relationship between government and business and the uh, interdependence and the power struggle between the two. This seems to be a uh, uh, an obvious thing as we watch it during the day, but possibly the source of the confusion of the American people as to how government is supposed to work and the relationship that yeah. business uh, has with, with government. When public, the public opinion polls show that large majorities of the U.S. public distrust the government. I think this is a reaction, this is sort of fed by this anti-government ideology that is so prevalent in our society. When you look at how people really feel about the government in terms, in specific terms, you get very different outcome. Like the Pew Center did a, a series of, of polls where they, there's 13 major goals of government that they've outlined and they ask people in, about these different goals and surprisingly enough 10 of the 13 goals were given very high marks by the american public like 75 percent or more of the public thought that the government was doing a fine job in in 10 of the 13 areas interestingly enough in two of the three areas that they didn't think the government was doing a fine job alleviating poverty and helping the elderly they wanted the government to do more the only one where there was negative responses was the issue of the immigration. Americans are very, very sophisticated. Once you ask, when you got down to brass tacks, if you ask them bluntly, what do you think about the government? Well, they don't trust it. But in terms of the specifics, they get it. They get that they want the government to be involved in alleviating poverty and regulating environmental pollutants and toxic wastes and things that their kids might consume, our, our, our food, um, the drugs that we, that we take. Right? They want the government to be involved in this. They don't trust the private sector because it's, it's driven by profits, and there can be problems with that. Polls also show that substantial majority of the American public see that the government is looking out for big interests rather than regular people. And so we develop in the book this idea of a, we can understand the functions of government and how they play out in terms of this tug of war that there's three, three general forces, and each of them are very complex, and depending upon the issue, they can, play it, they can express themselves in different ways. But we see government is an independent actor, is an independent force, right? And there's, there's, they have, it, the government itself has different interests within the government, right? Um, but then we see that, that the business community, that economic elites, the wealthy, represent a second force in general, and then the economic majority, the regular, regular Americans. And so the government, yes, is an independent actor, but what it does in, the, in terms of these functions that we lay out is often because of either interactions with or prodding from elements from within society. Government doesn't act independently very often. It rarely acts independently. How does business factor into all of this now? Uh, apparently even more than it has in the past because of the, 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 the yin and yang of business and government. Yeah. 
and that's a good way of, of thinking about it because they are interlocked, interdependent, and, and they develop in a, in a parallel fashion to each other. Right? You can't really separate the, what we call the free market from the government. Right? The government and the economy are so intermixed and intermingled that they, you, you really, to your peril, start to sort of withdraw the government. And we, we saw this in the 2008 economic collapse. The government stopped regulating the financial institutions the way that they had since 1933 and 1934. It took eight years for the economy to collapse after those, those deregulatory measures were passed into law. And so we see that we need the government to keep an eye out for economic stability going forward. And business loves, you know, they depended upon the government mightily in the wake of the 2008 collapse. The government not only bailed out Wall Street, our most important industry, even though not employment-wise, but just in terms of, of, you know, the amount of money generated, but they also bailed out General Motors, and they bailed out Chrysler. This was good for business, but it was also good for the, the general public. The, the book is about helping Americans deal with the ambivalence that they feel about their government today. Uh, you know, and it, it, it seeks to provide the tools, the understanding, and the historical knowledge needed to cut through these simplistic debates. It offers a fuller understanding of what's at stake today and replaces this simplistic fear of government with a more nuanced understanding of what's going on. I, I think this, this sort of blunt fear of government doesn't serve our nation well. By um, making Americans feel that their government is this kind of enemy entity in their midst, this occupying force in their midst, turns people away from politics, turns people away from wanting to engage in, in, in a progressive way with their government, um, to get the government focused on things that they want the government to do. And if they know what the government does in a way that they don't now, it, it'll allow them a clear understanding of how they can act within American politics. All right, uh, very interesting stuff. Timely, because we're going to be talking about this, I think, for the next uh, few weeks, if not longer, and we'll see what happens down in the nation's capital. Down in the nation's capital, but right now, let's go to a different place. <laughs> the best place. Let's go, let's go to Tom's History Corner, uh, which uh, I'm, I'm confident that before 2021, we'll have a new name. 2021's a good goal. That's a good We don't want to rush into things, no. like changing the name of Tom's History Corner. Uh, so, Ken, Julie, uh, if I say Holly Armory to you, what do you think of? Um, I used to work out there a couple of years ago. It's very okay. hot inside All right. the armory. Yeah. <laughs> Ken? Um, I, I used to walk by it a lot uh, on my way to the co-op when the co-op was, was on that near that space. It's no longer there, of course, because I used to work in a building that was the co-op before it was knocked down for store center. Personal history of Ken. What would you say if I told you it was the scene of a riot? Ooh, teenage riot. Well, I'm sure there were teenagers there. Um, if they were students, they probably were. Probably were. Uh, so, okay, Hawley Armory was built in 1915, mm -hmm. and it was named for a Yukon student, Willis Hawley, who had volunteered to fight in the Spanish-American War but died of typhoid fever before Aww. shipping out. Poor Willis. 
Uh, in its history, it held military drills, athletic events, dances, uh, ceremonies like convocation, as well as student recreational activities. Uh, today, it's a fitness center, which ties into Julie's memory. Uh, it has treadmills, ellipticals, stair climbing machines, resistance equipment, and more. And you can also take classes like fitness and yoga and spinning and things like that. Mm-hmm. But in 1941, it was the site of U- one of Yukon's many riots. <laughs> Maybe the only indoor riot. Uh, and certainly, well, I should say almost certainly, the only one provoked by a Rhode Island basketball coach. Ooh. So the, the date uh, is February 23rd, 1941. Yukon playing Rhode Island men's basketball. This in, was in the armory they played. In the army. Holly Armory, before the field house was built, Holly Armory is where the men and women played basketball okay. games. Uh, at this point, uh, uh, Rhode Island was a nationally noticed team. There was no really rankings back then. But this was the first year they were really good. Uh, there was a sports writer named Ned Irish who was the founder of the National Invitation Tournament, the NIT. I remember which, Irish. Which preceded the uh, NCAA tournament. And, and it was, uh, the games were always held at Madison Square Garden. It was the biggest deal for college basketball. And on this day, Ned Irish was up in stores scouting the Rams for possible invitation to Madison Square Garden. Uh, they would, in fact, eventually go and lose to Seton Hall in the first round. However, before that happened, it was a tense game. And uh, as the student newspaper at the time called it, an ancient rivalry between the two <laughs> schools. Although... <laughs> a bit rich considering that uh yukon was only 60 years old at this point and for we're most really of good time, at making up sports rivalries <laughs> anyways so. um but anyway it was ancient to those students and the game was tense uh and during the second half rhode island head coach frank keeney was so upset about a traveling call against a player named bud conley that he stormed out onto the court and got in the referee's face and looked like he was about to punch the referee until he was separated by Someone who's described in the, the uh, Connecticut campus story as campus cop Leland Cable. <laughs> so it's uh, vivid. It is vivid. And campus cop is in capital letters like that was his official title. <laughs> we didn't have a police department. Is that time. like Officer Krupke? It kind of probably was. <laughs> uh, so uh, Leland Cable um, breaks it up and Keeney is so mad he takes his players and he says, we're leaving. We're, we're, he takes them off the court. As they're walking off the court, a Connecticut campus student photographer got in his face to take a picture and one of his players uh, named Duke Abruzzi uh, took exception to this and punched the photographer, <gasps> which led to uh, UConn basketball players and fans attacking the Rhode Island players. Jeez, and then nice. Rhode Island fans jumped into the melee. Uh, and according to the uh, paper, there was about five minutes of scuffling, pushing and shoving, eventually broken up by able-bodied Constable Leland Cable. Eventually, uh, URI came back to the floor and uh, Keeney demanded that a Yukon basket be uh, disallowed. <laughs> uh, and the referees said they were going to declare the game a Yukon victory by forfeit. Keeney relented. The game went on. Yukon eventually won 63-62 to thanks to the play of senior James Angie Varinus. And to his credit, after the game, uh, Keeney went to the Yukon locker room and apologized for his behavior. That wasn't enough for some people, like, for example, Hartford Current sports editor W.J. Lee, who in a column afterwards said, the Rhode Island coach should have been arrested. Breach of the peace is the mildest charge that could have been placed against him. His players, too, were guilty of ungentlemanly conduct. (laughs) Not a surprising thing in view of the example set for them by a man old enough to know better. I agree, W.J. Lee. Lee. Bill Lee. Bill Lee. Oh, Ken knows him, of course. <laughs> so, he was, I think, still at the Hartford Current when I did my internship there 100 years ago. <laughs> J- just as, I'm going to refrain from any comments on that. Just as a side note, that was actually kind of a really bad month in the history of Holly Armory because the same week as the game, a report by UConn engineering professor 
Clayton Dorenwend found that the uh, Holy Armory was unsafe for occupancy (laughs) (laughs) because the balconies hadn't been properly secured to steel beams. Great. Uh, Dana Young, another engineering professor who had also examined the building, said in the paper, the balcony may go at any time. Good. We cannot say for sure. Good thing it didn't fall on the melee. I I don't think we want to let Coach Hurley know about this. (laughs) (laughs) And if that wasn't enough, that same month, a week before the game was played, uh, a carelessly tossed cigarette caused a gym mat to burst into flame <laughs> at Holly Armory. <laughs> Students who were swimming noticed the smoke coming through the ventilator, and they actually ran up, took the mat, and brought it outside and prevented the whole building from going up in flames. Wow. Which actually led to a total ban on smoking in the armory, which was pretty uncommon for 1941. Full of rich history. Full, of, And so you can go there today, and you can stand in the spot where Frank Keeney and somebody named Duke Abruzzi hauled off and punched a Yukon campus photographer. Do you think one day people will read our names and laugh at us like we're, <laughs> we're doing to these poor people? That's, that's our, what we want to leave you with. That's our message in this 10th <laughs> this episode week. of Yukon 360. <laughs> if you are listening to our podcast, we don't want you to change that, but we do want you to uh, subscribe. We want you to rate it. Give it an honest rating, but give it a five-star rating. <laughs> um, I mean, if you're being honest, you would give it a five-star rating, exactly. obviously. Exactly. We also want you to follow us on Twitter at Yukon Podcast. And um, we want some other things too. Julie, what else do we want from our listeners? Uh, you can follow me at Yukon, nope, Yukon Podcast and at Julie Bartuka on Twitter. If you haven't checked out Yukon Magazine yet, we all have stories in this past issue, magazine.yukon.edu. And tell your friends about Yukon 360. Ken? Mondays, 4.30 to 7 on yes. 91.7 WHUS, Yukon Sound Alternative, is where you can find me. Or streaming on the net. Uh, is it whus.org? Yes, it is. All right. Uh, you can just find me at TJ Breen on Twitter. Um, and uh, I think that's it. Sounds good. Thanks for listening, everyone. 